Welcome to the Kitchen Sink meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Please note, we will be holding this meeting via Zoom for the foreseeable future. If you'd like to attend the meeting live, go to oalaig.org for login information. And now, our speaker. Now is the time for the leader to qualify. Um, First of all, just a point of clarification to make sure you're in the right meeting. This is not Pirates Anonymous. Um, and the other thing too is, is that I've gotten to that age at about 73 years old where I can hide my own Easter eggs. So if you notice me glancing sideways, I do have some notes that I've taken as well too. Yes, I am Victor and yes, I am a compulsive overeater. I have no idea whether I was born a compulsive overeater or not. Um, but my mom did weigh 330 pounds, and she was a damn good cook, and she shared that ability with me as well, too. It's quite possible I just grew into this on my own. I really don't know. Although the answer to those questions might be kind of entertaining, there is no necessity for me to know what the answer is because it will not change my ability or anybody else's ability to become abstinent in this program one day at a time. Um, I do remember when I was growing up and in my earlier years, I was always a darn nice guy because I didn't want other people to have to bother me, especially life bother me with their problems. Um, and so what I found out is, is that food was a way to be able to put this barrier between life and myself. I could show whatever face I wanted to to the rest of the world, but you couldn't really see what was in behind that mask. And food allowed me to be able to deal with uh, and cope with a life that I didn't want to have to deal or cope with. Because it had this nasty habit, as it still was, showing up on my doorstep early in the morning without asking me how I'd like my day to go. It just comes out and says, here I am. But I didn't know how to deal with that. I didn't have the tools. I had no one to be able to provide me with some type of direction to be able to know how to be able to deal with life without food. And so um, before I got into OA, my weight would go up and down. I was yo-yo eater and dieter, basically a garden variety compulsive overeater. I would find that I would enjoy food, only I got to enjoy it a little bit too much, and it got to the part where I couldn't live my life without it. And the scale at one time was my higher power. Well, actually, one of my many higher powers. My mother was actually my first higher power. And my first wife was my second higher power. But the scale had always been my higher power when I was younger. If I got on it and I weighed too much, whatever that meant, and that changed all the time as well, too, then it was time to get onto a diet. Because I knew if I could get onto a diet, get down to that, whatever that magical, perfect weight happened to be, that somehow all the rest of my problems and my life would be solved. Because I'd be hip, slick, and cool. Everybody would love me. They wouldn't question who I was. And all they would have to do is pay homage to this facade that I put up. The thing is, I didn't even know that that's what I was doing at the time. If somebody had asked me, I would say, oh, no, I'm. this is who I am. In one sense, that's true, but in another sense, it was certainly not the true self of who I was. And if I got on the scale, 
and I had lost weight, well, all bets were off. That meant I could eat again. It was the green light went on again. Back when I was a kid, there was this program, a local program in Los Angeles when I lived there where uh, the fellow had this, what he called, uh, uh, milk drinking game. And every time he said green light, you drank milk. When he said red light, you stopped. And, of course, then he would say yellow light, and you weren't sure what the hell you were doing. Um, but that was me. This is that I made everything else outside of me my higher power. But they were not really a higher power. They just were other situations of people and places and things that were really no different than I was. And I think that's probably one of the things that bothered me when I was younger, was that somehow I was only as good as the rest of you. But I always had this feeling that somehow I was less than. And so trying to manage and control my food was a way that I was using it to be able to try and manage and control my life. And we'll touch on how life becomes unmanageable a little bit later on as well. Um, the thing that occurred, though, was is that every time I would go on a diet, and I would lose weight or gain weight or be at the same weight, it became more and more difficult for me to control my food. In the beginning, it was a little bit of, oh, I could take it or leave it as it came by. And it served my purposes, as I mentioned a few moments ago, to be able to help me to deal with life and not have to feel these nasty things called feelings. But it started getting to the point where I couldn't stop. And I would think to myself, oh, well, my just not trying hard enough. My willpower must be a little bit weak, so let me try harder. When I was a kid, we used to have these carnivals at uh, at the grammar school that I went to. And, you know, they had different types of games. You know, you'd throw a beanbag through a clown's mouth and you'd get a prize of some sort. And one of the prizes was one of these little things that looked, oh, about like a length of a cigar and it was made of bamboo that was woven together. And you could take your fingers and you could push them in. And when you would push them in, which, of course, they would tell you to do the first time, but they wouldn't give you the answer how the hell to get out of the damn things. But as you try pulled harder and harder to try to get out, the bamboo started to grab your fingers even tighter. And the harder you pulled, the more you were uh, held prisoner by that bamboo handcuff. And it wasn't until later on in life that finally somebody gave me the answer, or I figured out it doesn't really matter, was is that the key there was not to continue to pull harder and harder, but just to be able to relax, and you could gently allow the bamboo to fall off your fingers, and you could escape. But I didn't understand that, and that's a little bit of an analogy about how my life was is when it came to food. I kept trying to pull harder and harder and harder, and it didn't get me anywhere at all. As a matter of fact, anywhere good. It just kept digging myself deeper and deeper into this disease. Um, and as I said, I'm doing my Easter egg moment here for a second, so bear with me if you would, please. Um, the thing that I have found for me in my life, and I don't wish this on anyone, but it has taken some traumatic events in my life to get me into 12-step programs. The first 12-step program I got into was in 1981 when my family was torn apart at that time. And I 
I can look back now and say that I'm grateful. I wasn't at this time, but I was grateful that I got into the rooms really pretty much on my hands and knees crying and asking for help because I had no idea what to, what, what to do. And I'm not here to dwell on that program. I'm just here to say that even in the early parts of that program in the first few weeks and months, I found in the writing that I was doing that the subject matter of food started popping up. And I kind of thought, no, okay, yeah, I know, maybe sometimes I've had a little difficulty with food, but uh, yeah, this, this is not a problem. And besides, I need to be here for a different reason. And so that continued to go on. Um, and then I finally realized, wait a minute, I can do a plea bargain here. Food does seem to be a problem, but since I'm in this other program, what I'll do is I'll just conveniently drop in the word food in the first step, and that'll take care of it, of course, because, look, I'm already working the steps in this program. Why could it matter for me to have to go to OA and have to drop this in? And, oh, by the way, in the first few weeks and months that I was in this other program, I don't know why, but people happened to bring up OA to me. But I thought, no, no, I don't need that. I'm taking care of all my stuff right now. I've got this plan in front of me, and that's wonderful and great. Well, about 10 years later, uh, I got a call from my wife when I was at work one day, and I had to take her to the hospital. And the son that we were expecting didn't make it into this world. And I remember when we got home, I asked if she was okay, knowing I was asking more just if she was physically okay, knowing there was a lot of emotions still to go through possibly. And when she said that she was okay physically, I it was like somebody had flipped a switch, and I just remember sitting there bawling and crying at the loss of our son that never made it. And a few days later, as a result of that, it allowed my heart to be open to the possibility of getting into OA, and I went to my wife, who I'd met in the 12-step program, Oh, by the way, there are pluses and minuses to meeting somebody in the 12-step program. Um, and she was kind enough to gently mention that I might want to consider trying away. And so back in that day, 30-some years ago, 30 years ago, it was pick up the phone, make a call. I got the answering machine. It told me how to figure out where to go to different meetings. I dutifully wrote all that information down, put it in my pocket. And, of course, I know none of you probably procrastinate, but the old part of my brain and my old thinking was saying, once again, well, look, I'm in this other program. Why do I need to have a, a second program? I should be fine. And then a few days after that, I was driving to go to a meeting at this other program out towards Santa Monica. And my head started saying, well, you know, this is a way meeting over this other place. And the other my part of my brain was saying, but yeah, once again, you've got this, you've got, you know what the 12 steps are, you don't really need this. And my mind started going back and forth and back and forth. And the one thing that I have learned in my life is, is that whenever I debate myself, there is only one guaranteed outcome. I'm going to lose. And I'm grateful to say at least I was willing to toss in the towel and I went to my first meeting on Hill Street at 7.30 in the morning, uh, January 16th of 1991. And when it came time to identify newcomers, I raised my hand for the first time in front of strangers of people that I didn't know and said I was a compulsive reader and my life had become unmanageable. 
And after the meeting ended, somebody was kind enough to go out to have a cup of coffee. And they explained to me what uh, their abstinence was, what they felt abstinence was, and what their food plan was. If you are relatively new to the program, you probably have discovered that at this point in the program, there is no one set food plan to be handed to you when you walk in the door. And the reason for that at this point, and what works for me is, is that everybody may have a slightly different take on the problem of the food. They might be a compulsive overeater. They may be a bulimic. They may be anorexic. And I'm going to touch on a little bit of, and there may be certain medical issues that may be taken into, into account as well. So my food plan that works for me might not work for you. And my food plan might throw you completely off your abstinence. And my food plan, my abstinence has never changed. My abstinence is no chocolate, no compulsive overeating. And, but my food plan over the years has changed to meet different changes in my life at those times. I started off with three meals a day. And if somebody watched me today, except for some changes that have happened the last few weeks, you would think I was grazing to eat. I don't graze in the sense that I'm continually eating, but I have what I call small meals. I might have five, in some cases, maybe six meals a day, but they are no more than I would eat if I were eating three full meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and nothing in between. Um, back to my egg hunt again. Bear with me. And... Um, I will mention this, I, this is important for me is, is that a few days uh, after I had gotten into OA, I remember sitting down to my breakfast and this was uh, my food plan at the time was three meals, nothing in between one serving on whatever would be on a plate or in a bowl. And in this case, it happened to be a bowl. And I hired three people to bring it to the table so it wouldn't spill. They were jugglers. So I could pile it as high as I wanted to. But at least it was one bowl. And I remember after eating that, and I wasn't even particularly shoveling it down while it was as had been my want before I got into the program. But I remember when I, I got to eating and I could see that last bite that was there, and I brought it up on the spoon, and I put it in my mouth with a lot of fear. Because after I put that in my mouth and I put the spoon down, I knew that was the end of my meal. And I thought that if I, I thought that if I didn't have anything else to eat after that, it was going to die. Because I was still new in this program, and I had never had that experience of having someone in this case, my higher power to turn to, but never really having that feeling that I was going to be denied something that was an integral and important part of the way that I lived. There was an expression at that time of love in my life and acceptance. Harvey, go five minutes. And I didn't know what to do. But what I did have enough knowledge to do at that particular point was to get on my knees and pray. 
And my prayer was not for the food compulsion to be taken away from me for the rest of my life, even next week or even the rest of that day. I just prayed to my higher power as sincerely as I could with every fiber of my being to have that compulsive urge removed just for that moment. And it was lifted. And everyone who is here today, right now, at this moment, is participating in the world record for abstinence, which is just for this moment. It isn't for the rest of my life. It isn't tomorrow. It isn't this afternoon. It doesn't depend on what's going on in my life. I have some medical intestinal issues right now involving IBS uh, and a few other things as well, too, that inform what I eat. I'm working with my doctor right now. Very quickly, by the way, about on February 26th, um, I was taking medication that I had for 23 years, and my doctor was transitioning me to a new one. And three weeks later, guess what? I had gained nine pounds without any change whatsoever in my life, without any increase whatsoever in my food. And I'm working with him on something right now that hopefully we'll be able to deal with that. The important part I want to say about that, though, is did I like that? No, I don't like that. But I know that if I accept it, that it's the answer to all my problems. But the literature doesn't say anywhere that I've got to love it or I have to like it. It just seems I need to accept it. Will it be that way for the rest of my life? I don't know. I'm working with a doctor, and I have some hopes that there are some things that we can do to deal with my IBS and other issues. Jump into this program with all of your might, with your everything that you have in your being. Every time you stop and hold back, you're going to be tempted to want to go back to the way of life before this program. But if you grab onto it, to the lifeline that it truly is, I believe with all my heart and soul that this is the one thing in life, if you do all the full work, footwork to your best of your ability, to the fullest that you can, and throw your life into this program, you will find that food will no longer be your master, that you can find that as I do now, I enjoy the food that I eat. Big surprise, even though I eat nowhere near what I used to. And I've understood in the first step when I got in here that my life had become unmanageable. And I'm going to be really screwed if that's all I have. But I had that second step which says that there is a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity and which has done that. And in the third step, there is one phrase within that prayer that I think encapsulates everything about the program, and that is, relieve me of the bondage of self. There was no one who put a gun to my head to make me a compulsive overeater. And once again, whether I was born this way or I found this path on my own, Today, the chains of that particular way of thinking when I was younger have been removed and are contingent daily. My daily reprieve from compulsive overeating is based on my spiritual condition. So I don't want you to have to come in here on hands and knees, but if you do, God bless you because you might have a little more of a head start than if you're coming in here only with questions. But if you're only coming in with questions, that's okay too. Please stick around. You'll hear somebody's story. That might closely match yours better than mine. And you too can find freedom from compulsive reading. Thank you for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. 
There is no sharing of this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you asked a question last week, please wait until the first three questions have been asked before raising your hand. If you have a a question, please click the raise your hand icon. Oh, uh, Bob. Yes, thank thank you for your share. Um, Quick question. What did your addict brain say about the nine-pound gain? How did your... That if that part of your brain still exists, how did that deal with the nine pound gain, weight gain? Uh yes, that part of my brain still exists. Um one of the things that I this is what my own personal belief is, just as far as the addiction part of my brain goes, it's always gonna be there. With a greater exercise of this program, it continues to atrophy. In other words, it continues to get smaller and smaller, but it's always there, and at a moment's notice, as part of this disease, it can jump right on up. Um, what the first response was, damn, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to have gained nine pounds. I didn't even have the enjoyment of indulging myself to get there. But I'm grateful to say that after 30 years in the program, I didn't do what I used to do, which is, When I would overeat when I was younger, and I would feel the pain and the distended belly, et cetera, et cetera, most of you can fill in the blank of what I probably did, and this is what I did do to alleviate the pain. I ate more, which I think is a reasonable definition of insanity. The thing that I am grateful for is is that I know that the reasons that I was – that were due to the weight gain – had nothing to do with anything that I consciously or even really subconsciously was trying to achieve. It was just an unintended consequence of what was going on. And I'm grateful I didn't beat myself up for it. As I said a few moments ago, once again, I accept it. Doesn't mean I like it, but I accept it. And by doing so, I don't have to go back to the food to try and solve a problem that food can never solve. Thank you. Uh, Jolene? Joy Lee. Hi, Victor. I love your share. Thank you so much. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater and sugar addict. My question for you is, how long did it take for you to break out of compulsive eating, and how do you maintain your abstinence on a daily basis? Two good questions. Um, the story that I told about the few days after I got into the program, that was a turning point for me. Um, because I know from my past experience, It would be very easy just to slip back into old habits. But it was a very pointed way of letting me know that the answer to my problem with food, which is more than just food, but my problem with life, my problem with problems I have with myself, that the answer is a spiritual one. And the second part of your question again was what? Um, How long... How long did it take you to maintain before you maintain abstinence? Um, I, I was able to maintain. I'm, I'm grateful to say I was I was main, able to maintain abstinence from the first day that I got into the program. Um, 
And once again, the reason for that was it didn't hurt that I had a little bit of familiarity with the 12 steps, but it was extremely important that I understood that I had to work those 12 steps in this program. And therefore, when I came into the program, as I said before, I came in and basically on my hands and knees. And by being open and willing at that time, to be honest, I was able to have abstinence from the first day that I got there. Had I not, had none of those things happened, had I not, I can honestly say because it did take me 10 years to get into this program, I had avoided it as assiduously as possible because OA is probably the least, quote, sexiest program out there. You know, you see all sorts of drama and theater and songs and dance and poems written by all sorts of about other sorts of addictions. You don't hear a lot about compulsive overeating. And so I really, really tried to avoid that. So I'm grateful when I came in, I came in on my hands and knees. Thank you for the question. Nancy B. Hi, Victor. Hi, great, great read, Jack. And absolutely, I don't think you speak for OA, but I think you speak for a hell of a lot of the old timers here today. You know, um, I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous for 44 years and 11 months of stating, and I have 150 pound weight loss. Two practical questions. Could you, first of all, because I don't believe this has to do a lot with food, and you've been talking about food a lot, I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the things that have happened to you that have given you that spiritual experience by applying the 12 steps in the big book in your life that have helped you remove your fear, your resentment, your anger, things that have changed what really counts so that you could have a spiritual experience and be the decent human being you are today. Second question, because I've spent most of this week at the World Service Business Conference. You didn't mention service. Could you talk a little about things you have done in OA from sitting in meetings to all the other stuff? Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Good questions. Let me see if I can parse that out for just a moment. I'm going to start with service first, and I may come back to you and ask you the first part of the question. Um, I heard a story, can't vouch for it being 100% true, but it's a story that does explain something for me in terms of service, is is that there was this uh, country about five or 600 years ago, and their king died, and he was a very beloved king, and they missed him greatly. And whenever they would have to be forced to go to war with another country, they had kept his heart in this silver globe. And what they would do when they would ride out to war was they would take that silver globe with the heart of their king and they would throw it into the enemy. And they knew they had to go get it. And if I take service positions, that's what I'm doing in this program. Even if it's only something so simple or menial as moving chairs, if it has to do with putting out literature, if it has to do with being able to take phone calls and sponsor, if it has to do with being of service as a secretary or treasurer. Uh, I spent uh, four years on the OALAIG board, the intergroup board. And by the way, let me tell you this. If you ever really, really, really want to find out if your program is working well, spend some time on the board. 
we are all human beings. We are fallible. And when we get into situations where that humanity can come and just come out in all sorts of forms, it can happen there. But the most important part about this is, is that if we, if anybody has done anything in their life and done it to a certain degree of success, however they measure that for yourself, it didn't happen because we sat on the sidelines. And if I get involved in service, especially, for example, in sponsorship, I'm either going to have to make a lot up a lot of BS stories or I'm going to have to be working the program. And every time I make a call or take a, a call from somebody that I sponsor, I have no idea what it does for them, but I sure as hell know what it does for me is it keeps me absent one moment at a time. Is that selfish? Yes. But it's a good selfish so that hopefully I can be there continually for them and for other newcomers who come in. And then as far as how this has changed my life in other ways other than just food, one of the things that I have discovered, especially through meditation and prayer part of the program, is that if I meditate in the morning, my spiritual practice, by the way, I do 95% of the time because, once again, I'm a human being and I'm not perfect. We are not saints. But when I get up and I start my day with meditation, what that does is it calms me down. And more, or at least, if not more, but at least as importantly, it opens me up to the higher power that exists in this program. And by being able to do that, Meditation actually trains me for life. It's very quiet. It doesn't seem like it would have a big importance in my life, but it does. Because how do you get serenity in your life if you've never had serenity in your life before and you don't even know what it feels like? When I meditate, I get brief glimpses of what serenity is like. And very quickly, by the way, I have thoughts when I meditate. Because guess what this thing up here was made for? It was made to think. And my thoughts may seem good and bad, but my thinking process is neither good and bad. It's appropriate for what it's supposed to do. So when I'm meditating, if I use, if thoughts come through, I don't have to push them aside or block them out. I can just acknowledge them every once in a while if I need to by just simply in my head going thinking. I'm not judging them. So I bring that into my daily life. And if I do that, I begin to understand the differences, in particular, for example, with fear, the difference between false evidence appearing real, those things that I think are going to hurt me but are really paper tigers and I really do not exist, versus, and by the way, I have been to Africa, and there are lions and tigers and bears, oh my, there. And when you're out there, you're not allowed to shoot them. And so at that particular moment, I have been able to, in those situations, determine the difference between a fear that is real and can be used properly to help save me and the fears that are not real about what if or why didn't I or could have it been this way or what happens in the future if this happens. And then all of a sudden it pulls and drags me out of the moment into things that don't even exist. So what the program has done, other than remove the compulsion compulsion to eat, it's brought me a sense of serenity when I'm willing to have it and when I'm willing to work the program. 
And, oh, by the way, if you saw a tape of my life 24-7, I wouldn't be walking around like this chanting all the time. In fact, you would probably hear me uh, rattle off a series of epithets occasionally to my higher power when I don't think it's going my way. But the point here is, is that I now have a path that I can get back on if I start to veer away from it. And I can understand that there's nobody out there doing things to me in 99% of the time. And with that brings a lot of freedom to enjoy life, not just enjoying the food, but enjoying everything from the sunrises to the sunsets to other people in my life. And it keeps away the chains and anchors used to bind me before I got into the program. Hope that answered your question. Um, Hans, or Hans, if Hans happens to be here. Yep, Carol. Oh, hi, Carol. Hi, Victor. Hi, sweetie. Great to see you, and thank you for your share. Um, I can see you. Yes, I can see you. I put on the video. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, building the muscle of patience? And um, uh, I know, we know that, you know, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today, but how do you make yourself be patient? Like, how do you cultivate patience in your That's a, That's an excellent question. Um, first of all, I can't make myself be patient. Uh, that's sort of like trying to make myself be thin. Um, how I cultivate it, sometimes I cultivate it through gritted teeth. Um, I love my wife dearly, uh, but sometimes I wonder what her thought pattern is. And this can apply to anybody, by the way, not just my wife. And I can sit there and think, you know, why is this person even bringing something up that seems to be so illogical on the surface that they would even want to be able to entertain that thought? Now, at that point, I can press pause in that tape, and I can go to the other tape that says, oh, do yourself a favor and just go take a look under not two different circumstances where you started saying things that were not particularly logical and didn't surely make a hell of a lot of sense. and Therefore, if I understand that I am a worker among workers, that I am no better than and no worse than anyone else, then it becomes easier for me if I to be able to accept the apparent defects of that other person at that moment. So I somewhere in the literature, and I can't I can't uh, quote this word for word. But it talks about that obviously, you know, our self-will is what got us where we, where we are, et cetera, et cetera. But it also talks about that the use of, and this is my own word here, not in the literature, of self-love slash discipline of pursuing something that we know by the actions and outcomes of those who walked before us has been a good thing to do that sometimes, just like doing exercise in the morning, jumping jacks or whatever, I don't do them because I necessarily like them, but I know that the outcome and the results of them are going to be good for me. So if I can practice patience until I don't have to practice it anymore, but it becomes more part of who I am, that's how I learn to get there is by the doing and then trying to also use the spiritual part of the program to understand and accept people, places, and things outside of myself. Did that answer the question? Thank you very much. Julie. 
Thank you. Um, how do you use the steps and tools to deal with disappointment? Uh, well, I'm, without sounding like a broken record, when <clears throat> February 26th and three weeks later came around, and I had gained pounds with no responsibility to my own other than following my doctor's orders, I was disappointed. Um, I had had a pair of pants literally that I had been wearing for 25 years. And it's not just because I'm cheap. It's because finding pants that I really like, I don't like wool and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But the bottom line, these were really, really comfortable. And when I put them on and they were snug, because I had just actually been given some thought a few weeks earlier thinking, eh, maybe it's time to not worry about having different sizes of pants here. I'll take these in because obviously I've been maintaining this weight for a long time, weight loss for a long time. And then all of a sudden I put these pants on and it was snug. I was disappointed. Seriously, I was very disappointed. I accepted it, but that didn't mean I wasn't disappointed. <clears throat> and what I did was is that I was able to reflect back on my life at the times when I was disappointed and to realize that none of those disappointments killed me. And 95% of those disappointments didn't even have a major uh, impact on my life. And when I can get to that point where I accept that at a spiritual level, then I find my life is a lot easier when I am not sitting there judging myself. Because a lot of times in the past, the disappointment would be that I hadn't lived up to my own expectations. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that all of a sudden I'm now happy with settling for the worst things that I do. I always try and aim for doing the best that I can. But even then, once again, I only pray and meditate in the mornings 95% of the time. But if I'm working in that direction, there's less chance that the disappointments are going to be blown out of proportion or stay with me for a long period of time. And once again, that boils down to how my spiritual life is being maintained by me because nobody else in the world has responsibility for that except myself. Hope that answered the question.